The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. It's also providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project, which is based in Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100-megawatt standalone battery storage installation that's going to start commercial operation in the middle of this year, providing energy and grid services to the growing Texas market. Learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Conventional wired approaches, they may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. And SNC is here to help. SNC helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs. And you can learn more at snc.com/nwa. This is the Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Carbon capture has long been criticized as too nascent, too expensive, and too distracting. But that may be changing. Does a new direct air capture plant in Iceland herald a new era for carbon management? Plus, new research shows just how drastically we need to slash fossil fuels to limit dangerous warming, and California tries to fix the busted recycling system. Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, happy to be here. Did you line up for your $1,000 per ton CO2 offset from this direct air capture plant this week? No, no. I'm just trying to figure out how to efficiently recharge an electric vehicle using just like a little orange cord. (laughs) Catherine is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. And we are also joined by Ed Crooks. He is, you're, where are you, Ed? You're in Oklahoma? I am indeed. I'm in Oklahoma City right now. What's got you there? Um, Visiting clients, um, seeing various companies and and people uh, in the energy industry out here. So it's been kind of a shock to the system to be flying again, um, but actually quite nice in a lot of ways, that feeling of getting back to normal. Uh, I, uh, some, some days it feels like that, some days it doesn't. Ed is the vice chair of the Americas at Wood McKenzie, and he's a former editor at the Financial Times. And we've got a lot to talk about this week. First, let's turn to Iceland. So last week, this Swiss company called Climeworks officially launched a direct air capture plant in Iceland called Orca. The plant is a large series of fans or collectors, and it moves the air over a filter to create a chemical reaction, binding the CO2, which can be injected underground and mineralized, basically turned into rock. It is powered by a geothermal plant, and that's why Iceland's abundant geothermal resources and basaltic rock make it a good place to house a plant like this. The company has signed deals with Swiss Re, Bill Gates, Stripe, and Shopify to sell them credits from the plant. But the tech is still really expensive. Uh, As I alluded to, I think $1,000 or $1,100 per ton of CO2 that they're selling these voluntary credits for. And it's still very small scale at around 4,000 tons of CO2 per year. But it is the biggest such plant of its kind, and there are more in the works. And Climeworks wants to get megaton scale plants by the end of the decade. So that's a million tons of CO2. What does this commercial launch signal for the carbon capture industry? 
Catherine, what what is this plant? How does it work? Uh, what are your thoughts on this announcement? Yeah, so I reached out to Ryan Hanna, who's a scientist and professor at University of California in San Diego. And he said, the really big way to think about this is that there's this carbon scrubber, a CO2 scrubber, over which ambient air is brought into contact, and then it grabs a bunch of the CO2. And then, then once it does that, it still has to be scrubbed and gets to maybe... 98, 98, 98 or 99% pure. And at that point, you can put this into, you can reuse it. So you can put it into greenhouses, carbonation, like a Coca-Cola, synthetic fuels, put high pressure into pipelines, um, or you can put it underground. So there are kind of a couple of different ways that you can go with direct air capture. One is to completely get rid of it, which would mean to put it underground. That would get it out of the air altogether, or the other way is to put it back into the economy. And it doesn't reduce then the amount of CO2, but it doesn't add to the amount. And the whole trick is, of course, is this this is this plant, which is pretty interesting, is very small, that the use potential is minuscule compared to what has to be stored underground. And you have to prove this out, not just from a technical and feasibility way, but like, how is this going to work as at a cost and business basis? Like, how do you actually scale this? Because it because of the size of the problem? How do you scale it in a way that you can reuse it, but that you can also actually get rid of it. And that is a really gnarly issue. Yeah. So the, the way they're doing it now is that they're mineralizing the, the CO2. So it'll basically be stored underground as rock uh, permanently. But as you said, you could turn that into to other um, uh, materials and potentially create other revenue streams but all still very expensive and, and limited in nature. Ed, what do you make of the scale of this project and the tech itself? Yeah, I mean, the, the scale, uh, as Catherine was just saying, it's not great, is it? I think that 4,000 tons a year they're talking about capturing, that's equivalent apparently to um, about the emissions from 850 cars or about 1% of the emissions of one coal-fired power plant. So certainly at this stage, uh, nothing to get too excited about there in terms of the scale. And as they're saying, you're going to need to scale it up a lot if it's really going to start to make a material difference. I mean, more broadly on the technology, my feeling, I'm, I'm deeply conflicted, I have to say, about direct air capture in the sense that um, climate change is a really tough problem. We need every tool available to tackle it. I don't want to rule anything out. I don't want to start off you know, right at the, of, uh, uh, the start of this technology by saying it's never going to work. It's always going to be impossible. But that said, it's so expensive. and They haven't kind of formally published um, numbers on how much it costs. But as you say, it does seem to be very, very expensive. There's this kind of um, thing where you can, as a member of the public, uh, give the money in order to um, kind of extract carbon from the air in your name. If you back out that number, it seems to be about $1,100 per tonne of CO2 is what it's costing, which is kind of crazy when you think of carbon prices around the world. No one gets to anything like that. What, what's, what's carbon at the moment in the EU um, emissions trading system, it's about $60. If you think, comparing with other types of decarbonization, with, let's say, shutting down an old coal-fired power plant and replacing that with solar and wind, cost of that might be very low, 
you might even save a bit of money because the, the power would be cheaper. If you think about energy and efficiency improvements, they're definitely going to save you money at the same time as cutting emissions. So the idea that direct air capture is an important technology for right now when there's so much other, uh, much more low-hanging fruit out there in terms of economically effective uh, reductions in emissions, it doesn't really seem compelling to me. But that said, as I say, never say never. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the IPCC modeling shows that you really need negative emission solutions. But they're all still so much in the R&D phase. And so you need to know, you know, over the next decade, we'll find out so much more about how they work. And there may be some other you know, natural carbon cycle solutions, like in addition to tree planting, agricultural practices, plant genetics that are, you know, try to, to choose for plants with a better root structure for absorbing CO2. There are all kinds of other ideas about concrete and iron filings into the ocean to absorb CO2, which, you know, what could possibly go wrong there? Um, But there are a lot of things that we're trying to experiment with, but we have to do it so quickly. And one of the moral hazards that Ryan Hanna was saying is that what you don't want to have happen is for people to see direct air capture as a panacea and, and to just continue the status quo to say, well, we can just solve this down the road when we have to start solving now. Yeah, and and I agree with your assessment, both of your assessments on on scale and at your point is well taken on on the cost here and I think any high cost technology deserves a bit of skepticism. But over the course of the modern clean energy industry, we've we've heard that lithium ion batteries will always be too expensive. People laughed at the idea of making a car with lithium ion batteries inside because of the cost and weight um, as early as the mid 2000s. Um, you know, wind was at such a paltry scale just 20 years ago. And now look at how enormous these machines are. So look, the, over the course of human history and over the course of the, 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 the modern clean energy business, we've proven that a combination of um, scale and continued innovation can drop costs at a, at a pretty decent clip. So I, I hold out hope here. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with that. And, and as you're saying, as Catherine's saying, um, you have to invest in the technology now. You have to spend money on research and development, pushing it forward, because that's the only way you're going to get it to be cost effective at some point down the road um, on the timetable in which you want it. And again, as, um, as you've been saying, there are plenty of things we know how to do in terms of decarbonization, in terms of renewable energy storage and so on. There are still some bits of the energy system that are really intractable, bits of heavy industry, some types of transport, some processes, um, home heating even uh, can be difficult to address. For all those kind of things that are tough to deal with, can be very expensive to deal with, we probably are going to need some kind of carbon carbon removal solution. And uh, as you say, I think there's a good chance that direct air capture will have to be part of that. One of the things that does stand out to me is, even though we've been joking about the cost of these offsets, they are very different from forestry offsets. You know, you're not guaranteeing permanent emissions reductions when it comes to um, deforestation or afforestation offsets. And here you're actually permanently storing the sequestered carbon. And that's a very different proposition for companies that are looking for these cherry on top solutions. So obviously, big corporates need to buy a bunch of renewable energy, and they're going to invest in forestry offsets as well. Uh, but but 
I think that there's a place for companies with some money to spend on their carbon commitments to prove that they are making permanent carbon reductions. And so there's there's an attractive premium on on these kinds of credits. And that's why people like Bill Gates are, are buying these credits. That's why Swiss Re and Shopify, which have signaled that they're willing to pay a premium for these offsets, uh, are buying them. So that, to me, feels important to their business model and actually important to the broader space, that there there is a place for these kinds of offsets. Yeah, and in the 45Q tax code, um, these companies can get $50 a ton to store. And, you know, right now the market won't do it, right? Because it's just, you know, you would have to be able to sell your product for more than the cost of producing it. And that is true in any product. Um, and so, you have to have some kind of other market mechanism. And that could be, you know, a tax credit, you know, some kind of payment to companies to do this to make sure that you're actually valuing the benefit of reducing emissions. Um, And so all of this comes into, you know, what are the public policies that are going to really make this make sense? Because on its own, the technology um, without some indication of the value that that it is giving to reducing CO2 is going to be really hard to recoup. So in thinking ahead here, this is a small project, but it is a landmark project and quite important. And so we'll see what happens with scale and cost. But Climeworks feels, they say that they're confident that they can scale to, uh, you know, millions of tons by the end of the decade. So why direct air capture and not point source sequestration? That's where a lot of the focus was at the turn of last decade. But now it's The focus seems to be on direct air capture. Any thoughts on the technological breakdown of where carbon capture will be? Like what what technologies will dominate and why all of a sudden direct air capture is is taking up most of the attention and investment? Right, absolutely. I think that's a great point and a a great question. In fact, it's a point I was just about to raise myself, which is one of the things I still can't get around is the comparison of the concentration of CO2 in the air with the concentration of CO2 that you get coming out of the exhaust gases, the flue gases from a power plant or an industrial process. Um, Of course, famously, what is the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere right now? About 412 parts per million. So that's about 0.04%. You compare that with the exhaust gas coming out of a gas-fired power plant, that's about 8 to 10% carbon dioxide. Um, out of a coal-fired power plant, it's maybe 12% to 14% carbon dioxide. So you've got a much greater concentration of the stuff you're actually trying to get, and you've got much less kind of unwanted kind of surplus gas that you have to move around that you don't really care about in any kind of uh, capture process. And that's why um, capture costs for um, point source carbon capture from a power plant or whatever, still fairly expensive, but it's nothing like $1,100 a tonne could probably be done for one-tenth of that, maybe even less. So I think that's absolutely right. My feeling is that if you're going to uh, pursue the carbon capture route, and you probably should, you should definitely be pursuing it in uh, just as aggressive a way and possibly even more so in terms of uh, installing carbon capture onto power plants, other industrial plants, as well as simultaneously going down this direct air capture route, which, as we've been saying, may well also be necessary. 
A quick pause here to talk about our supporters of the show. One of those supporters is SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions to renewables. This year, SunGrow is supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across North America. One of those projects is in Fort Worth, Texas. It's the Chisholm Grid Project, and it's going to use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls alongside lithium-ion batteries to meet the demanding air cop market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of those batteries. In the past year, SunGrow has also joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more about SunGrow's wide range of industry-leading technologies, email info at sungrowamericas.com. We are also brought to you by SNC Electric. Solving your power-related challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or maybe a commercial enterprise, you've got a critical decision ahead of you. You can select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, getting to that conclusion can be uncertain and very time-consuming. And that's why you need an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com nwa. Let's turn to a new study in the journal Nature that models how quickly we need to phase down fossil fuels to keep global temperature rise at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So the researchers found that 60% of oil and gas reserves and 90% of coal needs to stay in the ground by 2050. And others have tried to quantify this, and this seems to stack up with, with, um, with other numbers that I've seen over the years. And that means that oil and gas production would have to peak like right now and fall 3% yearly through the middle of the century. And this analysis shows that we need to also capture four gigatons of carbon yearly in order to meet that emissions budget on top of everything else and on top of a bunch of renewables on top of, you know, divesting from, from fossil fuels. So that's why it's important to be thinking about the gigaton scale for carbon capture projects like the one we just discussed in Iceland. So what would this actually mean out in the real world? These numbers are obviously extraordinarily drastic. So let's talk about the study. And um, Ed has been covering the oil and gas industry for, for a long time. And I think he can speak to what this would mean for the business itself. Um, Catherine, quickly, just to the study, how, how strict is our carbon budget looking? Oh, this is really bad. <laughs> because all they're looking at is if you to even have a 50% probability of limit, limiting warming to one point five degrees centigrade, that by 2050, you have to have 60% of oil and fossil methane and 90% of coal unextracted. It has to stay in the ground, basically. And that oil and gas production has to decline globally by 3% each year until 2050. And of course, that's going to affect different regions quite differently, depending on what their resource mix is. But this is only this is only a chance of 50%. And to me, that's terrifying. When we look at, it would mean you'd have to have peaked gas now, basically. And and when you look at what the, and I'm, I'm interested in hearing from Ed on this, like what the oil majors are continuing to do, because they're continuing. And BP has 900 um, million barrels of new production for 2021 slated. Like, th this isn't necessarily slowing down. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, Ed, what you think about this. 
Yeah, it's actually um, very close to the kind of things um, we've been looking at on this. We do um, a scenario giving our view of what a world might look like that limits uh, global warming to one and a half degrees centigrade. And it, it's broadly aligned with this. I mean, one way we think about it in terms of just kind of illustrating the scale of the challenge is that if you think about during the pandemic last year, global greenhouse gas dropped by about 1.8 billion tonnes annual emissions. If you want to get on that pathway to net zero by 2050, which is roughly what you'd need to do to stay within that 1.5 degree centigrade limit, you need to cut emissions by about half that, let's say nearly a billion dollars, nearly a billion tons a year every year in the 2030s. And by probably even more than that, maybe 1.2, 1.5 billion tons per year every year in the 2040s. In other words, you'd need a kind of a pandemic impact on global greenhouse gas emissions every two years in order to get onto that pathway that gets you to net zero by 2050. So it's a huge, as the IPCC was saying last month in the sixth uh, assessment report, 1.5 degrees is not quite out of reach, but it is very nearly out of reach. A huge change will be needed very soon to get us onto that pathway. And so then what does that actually mean for industry? I think there's an interesting uh, contrast to be drawn between what it means for the oil and gas industry on the one side and the coal industry on the other. The thing about oil and gas is um, production declines naturally anyway, as reservoirs get depleted, pressure drops, production goes down. So essentially, if you stopped investing in oil and gas, production would fall and probably even by faster than the 3% a year that's being talked about in this report. So essentially, if you cut off supply to the oil and gas industry, supply of capital uh, funds for investment, then you get that decline in output. Coal mines don't have that kind of natural decline. So to get coal out, you're actually going to have to go around and actively shut down coal mines by whatever means, cut off supply, um, however you go about it, in order to get production to decline. What I think ultimately that tells you is that what really counts here is demand, not supply. If you cut off capital to oil and gas, if you shut down coal mines, but you don't do anything at all about demand, then um, prices are going to surge. You're going to get huge disruption. People are going to very be very unhappy. You'll get massive uh, social and political backlash. I'm sure that um, uh, climate policies would come under enormous pressure in those kind of uh, scenarios. If you think about what's happening in Europe right now with record uh, power and gas prices, you're seeing demonstrations in the streets, um, concerns about uh, people, vulnerable people, people on low incomes, not being able to heat their homes over the winter and so on. That's already starting to cause some problems. And so that, I think, is just a foretaste of what we could get in a really big way if you focus too much on supply of fossil fuels and don't think about demand. And so that's why when you think about demand really being essential. So it's things like um, switching from gasoline vehicles to electric vehicles. It's things like um, moving from gas heating systems to heat pumps and so on and other electric uh, heating systems in homes and all those kind of things. It's that end of the equation, I think, that you've really got to think about 
rather than the supply side. The supply side is really geopolitically complicated. When you think about the largest reserve holders being the Middle East and Russia um, for fossil methane gas, and then you know Canadian tar, tar sands for oil and Venezuelan gas. I mean, it, it's very complicated when you look at where you would have to put the pressure to not extract on the for the supply side. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and what you said is factually true, right? The economics of supply and demand would suggest that if you cut supply then and don't cut demand, then prices will go up and it will cause problems and and that is absolutely correct. But I wonder if this can be conveniently used to uh, avoid you know cutting upstream investments because we need to do it all as we said in the last segment we need every tool at our disposal and it means we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground and we need to slash demand quickly and i do there's been a lot of criticism of the oil industry in particular in recent years over BP's construction of the carbon footprint and really pinning this on individuals, that it's all about individual responsibility. And it's such a vast structural problem that it really doesn't come back to just individual change. And so, again, I agree with everything you said there, Ed, um, but I also feel like that can be a convenient excuse for not doing the divestment that we need to see in order to prevent unchecked warming. No, I 100% agree with that. And I think, as you say, a lot of this discussion about personal behavior, personal responsibility um, is kind of misplacing what the real issue is. And as you say, it has to be um, societal change that we have. It, it just individual behavioral, behavioral changes can't make a difference. And I would come back to that. Actually, later in the cast, I think I have an interesting discussion of that and something else I want to talk about later on. But as I say, get to that later. Um, what I do think, though, is that for as long as the um, demand is there, the supply will come to meet it. And that actually, um, that's not a, a distraction or a diversion to, to insist on that point. And I, mean, I think, so when you talk about BP, right? So that's a really interesting example where BP, those other um, Western oil and gas companies in Europe, in the United States, um, they could cut their production. If the demand remained the same, that would not mean that uh, that demand would not be met. It would just be met by other producers. And other, Catherine raised the great point, right, about resource-rich countries in the Middle East, um, former Soviet Union, Venezuela, wherever it might be. All those places would be able to expand production um, in order to meet that demand for as long as the demand is there. So I, I actually, I mean, although I, I hear what you're saying and, Certainly, this point about individual demand is is a, a red herring, and I, I agree we can't put really a lot of weight on that. I do think, fundamentally, it's those policies that change demand are going to be the really important ones here. And, and as I say, some of those I've just talked about, electrification of transport, electrification of heating, changes in industrial processes, those are the things that really make a difference. Yeah, this is extraordinarily hairy. The last point I'll make on this is about public perception. And I think that reports like this one, this, this study in the journal Nature are starting to resonate more broadly. They used to be relegated to academic journals and climate wonks, and you had all these complicated scenarios around emissions. But as we discussed with the, the recent IPCC report, these impacts are out our windows. We can see them, we can feel them, and 
and and public perception is shifting and we have a lot more reports that are showing just how complicated and difficult the math is you know our 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 we are coming up against our carbon budget very very fast and that's resonating much more broadly and i think it's starting to create new pressure points and so this study um, maybe uh, you know a, a few years back might not have resonated as much, but now people are are covering this because it just feels so much more dire and urgent. I totally agree that it's being covered a lot better, um, certainly in the media. But there were also a couple of recent surveys that were done. One was Pew Research Center that they surveyed 17 advanced economies: North America, Europe, Asia Pacific and found that people across the world are greatly concerned about climate change. 72% are very or somewhat concerned, and 80% are willing to make sacrifices to address it. However, they also believe over 50% say they're not at all confident that actions taken by the international community will reduce the effort, the effects of climate change. So there's there's this great concern out there and a willingness to do something, but not very much hope that the international community is doing something. And then the other study was uh, 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25 years in 10 countries. And it found that over 50% felt sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and guilty. 45% their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily life and functioning. And so much of this was because of what they say was the inadequate government response to climate change and these great feelings of betrayal of, of their governments to address this. So there is definitely a public perception that something has to be done. It, you know, there are more climate refugees than any other type of refugee, as we talked about last week in our show. Um, and people really care about it, and they're willing to do something different, but they also don't trust the governments to do it for them. And any final thoughts on how studies like this are starting to resonate, either through industry itself or the public broadly? Yeah, I entirely agree with everything you've been saying about the public debate. People uh, do seem to be, by and large, uh, more engaged with the issue now than they have been in the past. I do think the level of understanding generally is much greater. The level of debate that we see in the media and everywhere um, is definitely higher than it used to be. And actually, just I would say this particular individual paper that we're just talking about right now is a great example of that. And I would urge everyone to go and read it. It's um, it's online, free to read by... Um, for academics from University College London. It's in the general nature, very accessible, um, pretty kind of easy to grasp piece of work. And it's a great way to uh, learn more if you're interested in the subject. I would say just, just go and have a look right now. Let's turn now to our final topic in California. California often sets the tone for environmental policy, tailpipe emissions, electric cars, renewable energy mandates. Now it's trying to set standards for recycling that could create ripples through the broken industry. For decades, the reality of recycling or the reality of non-recycling has been hidden from consumers. Only around 10% of items actually get reused. And we learned from uh, an investigation last fall that the plastics industry was central in creating the labeling system gosh, it was the 80s or the early 90s that convinced consumers that they were doing good. And basically, you can just slap that um, 
that recycling label on anything. And people think that that their trash is recyclable when in fact there's only a small amount of stuff that can be cultivated in the recycling system. So California is establishing what it's calling a truth in advertising law that would only allow the recycling symbol to be printed on items that can actually be recycled. Other states are crafting similar laws. Uh, New York is, is one. So will it create broader changes? And how will it intersect with the energy industry? Because plastics are so crucial to the growth of the the projected growth of the petroleum industry. Um, Catherine, why is California trying to regulate that recycling symbol? Yeah, for first of all, the recycling symbol was not something that our Environmental Protection Agency came up with. This was like, nobody's really sure of the origins. Um, And that symbol, the three little arrows with the codes inside, the codes, those resin codes were really just put there to distinguish what was in each product, not to indicate any amount of recyclability. So it doesn't even, is not even supposed to indicate whether they're recyclable or not. So first of all, there's an issue of like, what is getting recycled? What can you recycle to label it appropriately? And California is doing this because this is very much about state, state and local authorities. It's very disaggregated. It is not done from a federal level. This is very much local level. And so, you know, maybe the ones and twos are accepted, but part of this is just about trying to figure out what can be recycled. And and by recycled, that means that you can resell it in the commodities market. So there's an actual market for it. And the commodity market pricing is really, really important to all of this. You can go to recycling.net to see um, what those look like, and you can see what can be sold. Um, so you know, glass, paper, cardboard, metal, some plastics. But it's really important to understand what you can and can't do with it, and that the symbols don't necessarily mean anything. So that that's something I think California is trying to clean up at a start. Yeah, and just to follow up on this, we we this frontline investigation from last fall actually traced the origins of the recycling system, the recycling label to the Plastics Industry Association, and they had they had they had created it to uh, make it seem like more stuff was recyclable than it was, and to. To, to make the industry greener in people's eyes, because this was when we started to see a lot of uh, folks concerned about trash everywhere. And and this was a moment that they were trying to meet the public awareness of environmental issues. And so recycling became a major issue, even though there were concerns about its economic viability. And so the plastics industry created this labeling system to make consumers feel better. Uh, now, of course, we know that a decent amount of stuff can be recycled, but not that much. It's mostly like very specific types of plastic, glass and aluminum, and the vast majority of stuff like plastic bags and packaging just is not recyclable. Um, Ed, help contextualize this. So when we look at projected net demand for petroleum, plastics play a huge role. How big a role is this? Yeah, indeed they do. And I'm going to come to that in a moment. Firstly, I just have to say, I am shocked and I have to confess my ignorance here. I had no idea that you see that symbol everywhere, that recycling symbol. I was absolutely sure, totally confident that that meant plastics could be recycled. And it's kind of, it's extraordinary to think that that's not the case and kind of uh, shocking, really, that uh, it's been able to persist for such a long time um, without uh, actually meaning what I think a lot of people thought it meant. And as I say, would certainly uh, count myself among that. Probably should have known better, but I didn't. So, I mean, as you say, it, it, it's, um, it's a really uh, significant issue for the plastics industry, obviously, but also more broadly for 
the energy industry because um, at the moment, uh, demand for uh, plastics, petrochemicals is a fairly small proportion of total overall global demand for oil, but it is a proportion that's expected to grow very significantly over the coming decades. And whereas um, demand for oil for fuel is going to be under threat, particularly for road fuel as EVs become more prevalent, you're going to see demand for gasoline really start to come under pressure. But those EVs um, have quite a lot of plastic in them. Um, a lot of renewable energy technologies have quite a lot of plastic in. Plastic is used in uh, all kinds of um, applications around the world, many of which which actually help reduce emissions. And so uh, I think consensus view in the industry has been very much that despite whatever other pressures there may be on oil demand, that segment of the market that's related to the plastics industry is going to be very resilient and can continue to grow for a long time to come. If the plastics industry really gets its act together on recycling, that's not going to be the case anymore. And as you say, roughly speaking, 10%, maybe less. I've seen some estimates suggesting only 5% to 10% of all plastic gets recycled. If you go to much higher numbers, then that creates a very significant amount of additional feedstock uh, to make new plastic with that um, is going to displace oil and gas in the production process and mean you're not going to get that growth in demand for oil and gas in future decades. So it's potentially something that's going to be very important for the oil and gas industry and something that uh, it's going to be very important for everyone to keep an eye on. As I understand, some of the issues here, it is one of the reasons a lot of plastics don't get recycled is because they're very hard to recycle either uh, mechanically or chemically, a little processing that needs to be done. And I think the crucial thing is going to be building in recyclability right at the beginning and starting with um, products that you know what their complete life cycle is going to be and that from the very moment a plastic is created, its full passage through distribution, use, being turned into waste, being recycled, being brought back to the beginning as a feedstock again, that whole cycle has to be understood very clearly and planned for. I think we're a long way off that point yet, but certainly if these kind of pressures continue, then we're definitely going to head further in that direction. Yeah, and certainly that's what California and New York are trying to do. And I want to get to that. But first, I want to say that I, I shared your incredulity. When we talked about this story, this frontline investigation last fall, I was gobsmacked. It was, it was, it it made me reevaluate a lot of important moments in my life because I grew up uh, in the early 90s with a lot of recycling. Um, messaging I in in my in my school I created recycling programs it was it was the central environmental issue in the world of education and so that to me felt like I was doing a really important thing for the world and that's what everyone told us and it turned out that like it was not true and probably most of the stuff that we thought we were recycling wasn't getting recycled anyway and so I, I think a lot of folks were really I'm shocked to see to see just how that system came together and when it did fall apart when China stopped accepting a lot of our our waste and cities were forced to process it themselves 
uh, they real we we realized collectively just how uneconomic the process was, just how little was being recycled, and a lot of things came together at once. So so let's go back to what's happening in California and New York. Then obviously you know the the industry is not happy with these laws, and in order to make that change, that difficult change that you referenced, Ed, they're trying a couple different. Tactics. One in California is this truth in advertising law. So you just you just have you can't put the recycling symbol on something if it can't be recycled. The other is in New York, which is a form of extended producer responsibility. So look, you can put the you you, you if if something goes in the landfill, the person who made it has to pay for it. It's not the consumer who has to pay for it. It's not the city that has to pay for it and pass those costs on. It's actually the person, the company. That made that waste, and so that's another way of encouraging them to use different processes or to use more actually recyclable materials. And those are two different forms of regulation under consideration. Yeah, that is called extended producer responsibility. There's only one state that has full EPR. It's called, and that is the state of Maine that has done that. Um, And so Maine has kind of been the big experimenter on this. And you can kind of look at them as a bellwether for other states. So I think New York is looking at that. It is very controversial um, because it puts a lot of the onus on the producers instead of what happens at the end of the line. And so there is not a federal attempt to do that at this point. It's really much more about how do we do this on a state and local level. I I would say just if you go back to see you know what exactly in plastics is um, is recycled and what is just gumming everything up. So if you if you send the wrong materials into the recycling processing uh, facility, it's just going to gum it up and it's going to cause, yeah, it's going to it's going to reduce the process efficiency, be contamination, and you won't be able to get what you need out of the product, which is a commodity, right? So if we look at plastics, and, and EPA has some great information, um, a lot of statistics they track, their, their most recent are from 2018, um, where they say you know, 35.7 million tons of plastics are in municipal solid waste. So there are lots of different waste streams. This is municipal solid waste. Three over three million tons are recycled, so that's three million out of thirty-five point seven million. Five point six million are burned for electricity, and then twenty-seven million were landfill. So a lot of them are going to the landfill. But so part of what can happen is just to try to figure out what's going into the re- recycling stream, what is actually a commodity, what's being sold, and what's just gumming it all up. So you, you kind of have to get a sense of what is happening out there first. And you know, according to EPA. They're trying to do a lot of this. They're trying to come up with a standardized toolkit, um, language on recycling that is consistent, doing some education and outreach, because certainly so much of this ends up being on the back of the consumer. And when you think about their plastics, they're things that go in your mis- municipal recycling bin, glass, cans, plastics. But then there are other things like electronic waste that is in a completely different waste stream and you have to go to completely different types of recyclers. Textiles might go into a different place. Food waste. I mean, my county is starting to do collect food waste, but that's pretty new. Um, And so EPA is trying to figure out how do we do this? You know, what should be included in the measurements? How do we standardize this, the language, and give some guidance to state and local facilities? So they are November 15th going to release on America Recycles Day, a national recycling strategy that's really going to kind of help set forward some of what they intend to do. There is a national recycling goal uh, to increase recycling rate at 50% by 2030. So 
that would be significant. And, you know, I've certainly been working on recycling for sort of the critical materials piece of things for a while. And um, it's these are not easy things to deal with. I mean, if you have if you have a waste that has intrinsic value in it, if it has, you know, product, if it has nickel or cobalt or silver, gold, those are really valuable. But trying to figure out the value of a commodity like a plastic resin is a whole nother thing. Just one final thought, I guess, on um, another interesting thing to look at, as well as, as you've been saying, these different approaches being tried in the US. In the EU this year, they've introduced a new tax on non-recyclable plastic, which uh, can run into the billions of euros. I think it's Euro um, Italy, which for some reason is the the biggest user of these non-recyclable plastics. They're having to pay a tax of um, certainly more than a billion euros, heading towards two billion, I think, um, for the cost of that. So I guess that's potentially the uh, the uh, strongest kind of uh, system you can put in place is to have um, some kind of tax mechanism that really starts to put pressure on this. That I'm sure would start to drive a lot of change in the industry if you introduce that in the United States as well. All right, let's go to our free electrons. Ed, what is your free electron this week? My free electron is, I think, a really fascinating bit of work uh, backed by the uh, trip hop group Massive Attack. Do you remember them from the 90s? Oh, yes. I love Massive Attack. You, yeah, great group. Those first three or four albums are absolutely fantastic, I think. Really, really kind of love them, particularly the very first one, Blue Lines. Very highly recommended if, if nobody's heard it. Uh, very highly recommended if anybody hasn't heard it. So they've um, they've been becoming increasingly sort of socially aware and uh, politically conscious in recent years, and they have become increasingly interested in the issue of climate change and what could be done about it. And clearly, they are very conscious that as a band that tours the world, putting on shows, they have a very significant carbon footprint. There's a lot of very wasteful use of energy that goes into a rock show and a rock tour. And so they've been working with the Tyndall Center, which is a group of, um, it's a research institute backed by a group of universities in the UK. Uh, and they've put together this um, package of recommendations on what the music industry could do, not necessarily quite to become zero carbon, but to become, they say, super low carbon. And it's a really interesting set of things, some sort of quite obvious things like not using uh, diesel generators for outside events, trying to use um, renewables and storage for that. They talk about shifting to using uh, renewable CNG for their trucks when they're carrying stuff around. Those kind of things probably fairly easy to do. Some Also some pretty radical suggestions, like the idea that basically groups would stop traveling with the whole, uh, with their own massive lighting rigs, sound systems, that you would just have, those would be fixed in place in each individual venue. The group would just turn up and play with the lights and the sound system that's there when they get there. Obviously a very fundamental change for the way rock tours lay uh, at the moment, uh, but would greatly reduce the amount of freight and cargo that have to be carried around. The other suggestion they have is that rock stars should perhaps consider giving up the use of private jets and maybe travel by train instead, um, which I think is interestingly a uh, provocative suggestion. I mean, we were talking earlier about um, personal responsibility and how uh, individual lifestyle changes aren't going to tackle the problem of climate change. And I guess that's true. Uh, of rock stars as well. Even a few rock stars giving up their private jets, that's not going to 
solve the problem. But I think it would be quite interesting. Obviously, you have a lot of people talk about environmental responsibility. A lot of people um, raise concerns about climate change in the rock industry and media more broadly. Movie stars talk about it as well. It'd be quite an interesting uh, sign of them kind of living their values, if you like, if they did start to give up those private jets. So uh, interesting to see how much uh, traction Massive Attack get with that proposal. Yeah, this is a an area to watch. And I, uh, the Guardian had a piece many months back about the music industry grappling with its in post pandemic environmental impact, and there are a lot of co- music consumption trends that may hold. More people might be, you know, interested in watching concerts remotely online rather than going to concerts. I mean, I think we all still want to go to live concerts. Uh, but a lot of, you know, industry groups are forming around carbon management and carbon reductions and how to bake in carbon reductions to ticket sales and how to reduce I- emissions from touring, as you explained. And um, there's also this post-pandemic component where you have people consuming music in different ways, and that that may play into it as well. So I'm I find that quite compelling. I also will say as an aside that one of the first interviews I ever did uh, when I started covering this space in 2006 was with the um, 90s rock group Bare Naked Ladies who had been touring with a biodiesel bus and talking about the environmental impact of their touring. And, and they came on one of the, the, the first podcasts I produced and talked about, uh, talked about this issue. So there were a select few thinking about it. Catherine, what's yours? Well, mine is not nearly that cool. Um, (laughs) But let's go to the land of Lincoln, Uh, Illinois. Governor Pritzker today signed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, which is over two years in the making, uh, partly because some of the leaders in their uh, legislature have been under indictment. But uh, they did provide $700 million in subsidies to Exelon to prevent a couple of nuclear plants closing. But the goals in this bill are big. It requires Illinois to achieve 100% zero emission electric sector by 2045, with a lot of emission reductions uh, before then. Um, coal has to reduce emissions by 45, 45% no later than 2038 and to zero by 2045. Um, They're going to invest $580 million a year, which is double what they have been doing, to generate 40% of their energy from wind and solar by 2030 and 50% by 2040. Right now, they only have about they have under 10% and a target of only 25%. So this is huge. They have extended energy efficiency programs to um, help save people hundreds of millions of dollars a year on their electric bills, especially for low-income households. They're also expanding economic opportunities to disadvantaged communities and communities of color, investing $115 million a year to create job training hubs and career pipelines for people. They're cleaning up the tran- transportation sector um, for beneficial electrification, electric vehicles, and charging infrastructure. They're investing $40 million a year to replace lost property taxes in areas where fossil fuel plants provided a tax base. So they're trying to make sure that a lot of those displaced workers and communities are actually get their economies standing up again, even though that particular industry may be closing. So it is really great bill. It seems like something that they say is going to create hundreds of thousands of clean energy jobs and really put 
Illinois at the top. So love to see this. Love to see states competing to be the cleanest. I've got a couple of free electrons. One is related to a story I mentioned last week about southeastern towns and towns along the Gulf Coast that are being bankrupted by extreme weather. This is all about cities hiring people to meet climate-related challenges. And I read this article in Green Biz about um, America's first chief heat officer in Miami. And uh, this is a woman who is is going to be working on vegetation programs, on emergency measures during extreme heat events, on making sure that every decision the city of Miami makes will um, will have positive uh, equity impacts when it comes to extreme heat, because we all know that folks with uh, fewer means are the, the, the ones who struggle the most during um, extreme weather events or extreme heat waves. And so this is something that other cities, uh, particularly Athens, Greece, have implemented. And I thought it was super fascinating. You know, cities around the country are recognizing that, that this is a real problem and they're starting to put positions in place to manage these real-time disasters we're seeing. I also want to mention um, many months back, I talked about a couple of new financial services that were emerging for people trying to figure out what to do with their money. And I saw this week that uh, Atmos Financial actually launched. They've This is a company that is helping people set up savings and checking accounts. And the money through those checking accounts is going to go toward clean energy projects and environmental groups. And um, you can get like pretty significant cash back if your money is going to environmentally minded companies when you're making purchases. So I've been thinking a lot about the financial system and how there are still trillions of dollars from the world's biggest banks being committed to fossil fuels. And it feels very overwhelming and it makes you feel lost in the system. But seeing now that there are real financial options for people to move their money is is a hopeful sign for me. So I'm definitely going to check that out. That's that's Atmos Financial. That's going to do it for the show. Ed, thanks for joining us from Oklahoma City. Thank you. Catherine, good to chat with you. Oh, great as usual to be here. Ed Crooks is the vice chair of the Americas at Wood McKenzie. Catherine Hamilton is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. I am Stephen Lacey. The Energy Gang is a production of Wood McKenzie in partnership with Postscript Media. You can find us all there on Twitter if you want to hit us up with uh, thoughts on what we discussed on the show or if you have suggestions for future episodes. Thanks a lot for being with us. We'll catch you next time. This is the Energy Gang, weekly conversations about the fast-changing world of energy.